0: Right when I hit the record button It was like perfectly timed Right when I hit it Hey what you have something to say About Star Trek Okay Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast that explores all of the nooks and crannies of our favorite spacefaring shared universe as we boldly head in to season two of its latest entry, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and we're running at half strength today because I've only got one of my other co-hosts who couldn't avoid a recording session because we live in the same place. Rachel Clow. Hello. Hello. I hope this is okay. Yeah, That's fine. All right, cool. I mean, it's been a while. We have a lot of things that have been going on recently, and I apologize to people who have wanted more episodes, particularly as we were ratcheting up towards the arrival of season two. But the good news is, on the on the night we're recording this, it is January 16th, and we have just about 24 hours to go until discovery season two actually begins yeah it's it's gonna be a long day tomorrow i think at least for me yeah me too yeah but uh so the reason that we're getting together here uh you're actually gonna get a few episodes in pretty rapid succession before the start of season two uh the premiere episode for us will probably come early part of the following week just because that is an episode where we're gonna have The full strength of our panel, including uh, Cicero Holmes and Zaki Hassan, and we're all looking forward to seeing exactly what season two is going to bring. Very excited, but we do have some other uh, news items that we want to get through before we talk about the reason that we're here, uh, which is the third Short Treks episode, so why don't we do a little bit of news first?
1: Aw, Yeah! The
0: biggest news that we probably have to talk about is that CBS has announced a entirely new Star Trek series. So this is going to be the third live-action series that's going to be on the CBS All Access streaming service, which will focus on Section 31 in the 23rd century, starring Michelle Yeoh as the mirror vision of Philippa Georgiou. Uh, following a report from the Hollywood Trades in November... CBS made the announcement uh, just a couple of days ago from when we are recording on January the 14th uh, that a Section 31 show with Michelle Yeoh is actually officially going to happen. Uh, Yeoh, of course, has had a supporting role in Discovery over the last couple of years. We expect to see more of her in Season 2, and I'm sure that they're going to be laying down some seeds for her own show over the course of this next season of Discovery, It'll be produced by CBS TV Studios, Secret Hideout, and Roddenberry Entertainment. Alex Kurtzman, Heather Caden, Rod Roddenberry, and Trevor Roth will be the executive producers. Aaron Byers will serve as co-executive producer along with Bo Yon Kim and Erica Lippolt, who will also write the series. And this is according to a report at Trek Movie. Um, and the sh- Yeah, so the showrunners are going to be Kim and Lippolt. Rachel, what do you think of this as a new leg for the star trek franchise on cbs all access
1: i don't think i am as excited about section 31 as (laughs) maybe some people are some people named chris (laughs) um but i am really excited about like a a female lead sure in uh for a show Mm -hmm. a star trek show that that's cool and um Empress Shorjo is a very interesting character. Yeah, she so, is. And always would like to see more of her.
0: Yeah, Michelle Yeoh, I think, shares your uh, particular excitement at the idea of a, of a new female lead for, for a Star Trek show uh, because she said, she had a statement that said, being a part of this universe and this character specifically has been such a joy for me to play. I can't wait to see where it all goes. Certainly, I believe it will go where no woman has gone before. And, uh, I mean, considering what we saw of Giorgio, of this, well, this vision of Giorgio in season one of Discovery, uh, it probably has the potential to be the darkest of them. I mean, when you think back on the season finale, when they were on Kronos and they were running around and she was, uh, both indulging in, uh, in the the joys of the what was it the the orion uh the embassy flash kinda yeah i mean <laughs> uh but th- but then you know when when times came for her to get down to business she didn't hesitate uh so i'm interested in this i mean i'll be interested to see as well what else they established as far as the mythology of section 31 is concerned uh just because What we've seen for that organization outside of Deep Space Nine officially has been very limited. Mm -hmm. We've only seen maybe the beginnings of Section 31 and a few episodes of Enterprise. I mean, there's tons of novels and comics and and external stories that you can absorb to your heart's content. But the the initial Section 31 stories in Deep Space Nine posited some pretty interesting uh, history, I think, that you could play around with sure and uh so it'll be interesting to see how well they operate in the 23rd century
1: i think it'll be cool to kind of have like an outlet for like dark anti-hero stories in star trek yeah in star trek so you can you know maybe take discovery as optimistic as you want to go Mm -hmm. because the people who want the like super dark stuff watch this show there's
0: something for them too yeah i mean i guess one of the things that kind of worries me and it's not even a worry it's just i'll be uh i'll be fascinated to see how they um how how they reconcile this the section 31 agents that we saw in deep space nine were hardcore believers in the ideology of the federation but at the same time they were willing to break those ideals in order to uphold them right Giorgio comes from a totalitarian society who despises everything that the Federation stands for. But now she is going to be one of the people conceivably who behind the scenes are going to be holding up Federation society and greasing the skids to keep it going to do the job, the dirty jobs that nobody else wants to do
1: well maybe there's some drama there she's kind of like the rogue agent right yeah like she's good but she doesn't play by the rules (laughs) so she's gonna have like her m being like come on yeah stop it
0: (sighs) or i mean maybe he he or she whoever her superior officer is going to be is just sort of like i can wash my hands of this now because i can give it to the former tyrant yeah yeah no there's a lot of interesting places that they could go with it Mm -hmm. and um i mean it's i'm definitely intrigued by the idea that we now have two series that confirmed to take place in one part of the timeline and right now it seems like we know more about this show considering the fact that she showed up on discovery already we know way more about this show i think than we know about what's going to happen with captain picard so yeah yeah so pretty interesting. There's no um, it, it doesn't sound like there is any idea exactly when it's gonna finally show up, but we know that the Picard show is coming later this year, so we probably shouldn't keep too much of an eye out for the Section 31 show until maybe next year, if I were to guess, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, but let's uh, let's move along a little bit. Alex Kurtzman uh, was recently quoted in an interview with Entertainment Weekly about the way that, uh, that Spock is going to be interacting with the cast of Discovery on, on, on season two. Uh, he talked about the structure of this season, and he, and he said, quote, It's very serialized. There are no real one-offs. Every piece of the puzzle is connected to the finale. We work backward from knowing the outcome we wanted to get to. So it sounds like kind of like from season one. There are episodes that seem standalone that are fundamentally part of where we're going at the end. That's well, not too surprising, but uh, so
1: basically, it's season like the same philosophy as season one.
0: Yeah, was, they they kind of operated off of, if they're working back. The working backwards thing is really strange. I don't know how many other TV shows do that, but maybe it's helpful since Discovery is technically a canonical prequel to sort of work backwards. Yeah. But
1: I mean, I know the last season of Game of Thrones like not the one that's upcoming Mm -hmm. from when we're recording this but the one in the past Mm -hmm. they did that Mm -hmm. and uh they did a bad job but uh (laughs) in my opinion yeah so it makes me nervous well i mean um,
0: i think we were both critical of the way that the finale played out just because it seemed like it got to the end way too fast of of discovery uh so hopefully that's not a mistake that they make again um yeah
1: seems like if you're working backwards, you could, you know, cool it a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, well, time will tell. But uh, Kurtzman was also on a, uh, a variety television podcast, Variety, the entertainment trade. And he talked about how this, what we see from Spock on Discovery could end up being kind of an origin story. So he says that he's a huge sucker for a sibling story one of his favorite kinds of stories and um the idea that spock and burnham are playing out this dynamic of logic versus emotion and knew each other before spock became the character we meet in tos was so exciting to me what got me so riled up about it is the idea that we can take season two of discovery and understand how his relationship with michael informed how he became the spock we meet in tos and that without that relationship he would never have been prepared for kirk that is a new and interesting spin and something really worth talking about because people haven't seen that before. Um, that, is, that is an interesting way of looking at it uh, because as much as we know about Spock, I mean, Spock is probably the single character that has been discussed and dissected and, and explored the most in the history of the entire franchise. We don't really know too much about Prime Spock between his late childhood and when he finished serving with captain pike aboard the enterprise so there's a lot of wiggle room there but rachel what do you think what are you going to be looking for from spock considering everything that you know about him in season two
1: i mean like what do i want to see i don't what would you
0: be sad how about this what would you be dissatisfied with in an exploration of Spock, considering where we're going to be seeing him in this uh, show.
1: Something way out of left field that he never mentions again for some reason, as long as it sort of like fits in with the. Like, we have a ton of Spock literature, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Television literature. Um, and so I think that anything that we see should fit in with all of what we already have mm-hmm. and not retcon things so intensely that it's hard to understand why he would ever never mention those things again
0: mm-hmm. now do you include michael in that because obviously he no never... <laughs> well
1: i mean something could happen that he could not mention i mean he doesn't talk about his personal life that much like he seems sort of to have a, a fracturous relationship with his dad yes he does, I, in that tos episode where he Sarek is introduced like you don't even know it's his dad at first right mm-hmm. like he's just like so, kirk so, isn't
0: aware i mean kirk knows of Sarek, but he doesn't know of the familial connection yeah
1: exactly so i think i think that spock has a uh not good relationship with his family mm-hmm. is not at all outside of what we know about spock yeah. So, as long as it sort of ends with that, <laughs> it, you know, it's fine. If it's there was a whole giant war that almost wiped out the Federation and nobody <laughs> met, ever mentioned it ever again.
0: Then you'll have a problem. Yeah. Well, you know, I've seen people complaining about this. The idea that uh, it's so impractical and implausible that Spock would never mention uh, anything about a half-sister or step or i guess uh, adopted sister if you want to put it that way but um if memory serves uh spock had a half brother that nobody knew sh- about who just kind of randomly showed up and was like it does, hey i'm doesn't god count. doesn't count doesn't count <laughs> you take the roddenberry approach with star trek 5 <laughs> but uh but no i mean you're absolutely right that's a really good point is uh he is he is very private and um that's kind of one of the things that I'm going to be interested in seeing if they explore in season two, this, these quiet moments just between Michael and just between Spock, you know, where they get to kind of talk inside baseball about their family life and, and growing up. Um, but uh, Kurtzman also said by the time Spir- Spock, Spurk, is <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Spirk. laughs> <Spirk.
0: laughs> by the time Spock and Kirk are together, which we see them being when you're airdropped into what became the first episode of TOS, Spock certainly works out logic versus emotion over the course of the series and movies, but he's more or less settled into his Vulcan character. And that was an interesting opportunity. Maybe he wasn't always settled into that Vulcan character. Maybe he had to go through a whole journey of logic versus emotion to figure out what was necessary ultimately was balance. And while Spock always represented the logic of the Enterprise... Kirk was the emotion of the Enterprise, and without his working through that self-exploration and self-discovery work, pun intended, he would never have become that character. I only partially agree with that, because, I mean, Kirk, it wasn't a two-way street, right? It was a triumvirate. McCoy was an important element of that. But the point is taken. I suppose that uh, Spock, there there was actually a really interesting story, it's not being published anymore, but... um, There was a comic book series being published by IDW called Star Trek Boldly Go, and it took place in the Kelvin timeline after Star Trek Beyond. And uh, they encountered a Spock of an alternate universe who, I forget what his first name was, but he took his mother's name and he surgically altered his ears and his face to appear human and rejected Vulcan philosophy. He still bled green, obviously, but... uh, Maybe there was a point where he was thinking of, I'm going to embrace my human side. Because we don't know fully for sure, I guess, that Spock, maybe he did go through some sort of disruptive aspect of his life where he had to look at the fork in the road and go, am I human or am I Vulcan? Yeah. So, we'll see. Uh, Kurtzman also talked about filling in the blanks for Captain Pike and number one, who I hope gets a name. Number one. I mean, I'll be fine if she doesn't. That's who she is. Her and name who she's is Una. Been. Okay. Well, maybe that maybe they'll canonize that. That'd be cool. Nyota Uhura was not canonized until the 2009 no. movie, so it's possible. uh And Kurtzman also gave a tease, saying that I'll tell you that you should not expect to see Lorca this season, but that doesn't mean he won't be back. Prime Lorca ain't <laughs> dead, folks. All right.
1: No, he's not. He's
0: not. Anyway, that's going to do it for the news this time. Let's move on to our discussion of Short Treks Episode 3, The Brightest Star. So since these episodes are so short, uh, you know, it's in the name. Uh, I'll just go through a pretty quick, quick rundown of what happened. Uh, so young Saru of the planet Canamar finds himself curious and wants to learn about life outside the pre-warp society of his village with a bunch of fellow Kelpians. Unhappy with the knowledge that he, like all Kelpians, will eventually be harvested as food by the predatory Baal, Saru manages to send a distress signal into space from some recovered technology, uh, forbidden recovered technology from the Baal, and it's answered by the USS Shenzhou. Saru departs his home world with Lieutenant Philippa Giorgio, with knowledge that he may never again return to his planet. Now that's a very, very basic descriptor of this episode. Once again, Discovery's impeccable production design, impeccable performance, particularly in this case by Doug Jones, and just really, really well-realized world, all of that stuff is on display to the nth degree in this Short Trex episode. Rachel, you your feelings on Saru, it's kind of hard to gauge exactly what you think of Saru. So before you tell me what you think of this episode, give me your perspective as it stands right now on Saru. Uh,
1: medium high. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't hate Saru. I don't love Saru. I like Saru. He's interesting he's cool sometimes i think he's a little bit you know flat like they're just like oh he's like i'm a prey species (laughs) i'm nervous (laughs) uh and that's kind of like all he is i think that some episodes he's he's more fleshed out i guess Mm -hmm. like the one where he gets the powers on the planet
0: yeah the away mission yeah yeah
1: um and in the book about him he's very much i really liked his character in the book
0: okay so you're making a distinction between the two though do you not necessarily well i mean
1: that's not like officially it's canon. not strictly canon
0: but um when we read desperate hours you said that you kind of jumbled together the vision of pike in that book and what you had seen from him in other places like the kelvin timeline and the cage yeah is that not the case with saru
1: i guess i've spent more time with saru in a tv format that i was sort of able to keep them separate i don't know mm-hmm. i i mean i i liked you get his internal monologue in the book yeah and I think that that helped me to understand his character better mm-hmm. uh, and sort there's sort of ideas that he's like always training to, to be hunted, right? Like, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. That was a nice insight from the book. We still need to talk about that book, by the way. That's okay. my fault. Uh, but that, that is a discussion that is forthcoming. But yeah, I like that as well.
1: Yeah. So it's not just that like, he's always nervous, it's that he's, like, ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can really see how that's a strength. So um, I, like, I like what his character could be on the show, for sure.
0: Okay. And when it comes to this short trek specifically, how did you think it shaped him? And how did you think it compared with the previous two?
1: So I think in general, the trajectory of the short tracks is they are all each better and more strong than the last.
0: You like this one more than Calypso?
1: I'd say I... On my first viewing, maybe on my second viewing, I liked it as much or more. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I... I like that uh, Saru is... You learn more... You learn that he's very, you know, gifted, talented, exceptional in that way. Um, and that he has a aspect of not accepting the status quo, which I think is cool. Um, but, you know, this... Th- I like this one better because I think it's a, a scathing criti- critique of capitalism. It is? <laughs> that's what that's what I was like getting. Like the
0: ball at. is capitalism No, is
1: that... like look, we're all in this system where we believe that like in order for us to be happy and prosperous, some people have to suffer cuz that's like what modern capitalism is. Okay. Okay. And mm-hmm. but we can't question it cuz we're like then like we we might like we get, we're happy how we are, so it's okay that some people are suffering um Mm. but we're we're too afraid to sort of imagine this better world in which nobody has to suffer in order for us to be happy Mm -hmm. um but you know it's there's a big unknown and like you could even go further with this analysis (laughs) okay (laughs) where like saru escapes this like through his like exceptionalism right but, like, he leaves everybody to be in the system. So it's like, we kind of all believe that, like, if we're exceptional enough, like, we will be exempt from being in a situation where we can be destroyed at the top of, or at the drop of the hat by some sort of whims of the market. But <laughs>
0: Well, that, that's kind of demonizing the Federation in that, in, in your analogy, though. I mean, the reason that the, those protections were there was to protect that society to a degree
1: anyway well no i'm not saying the prime directive is wrong okay what i'm saying is we all need to join the federation <laughs> chris you're not going to get
0: any argument from me
1: oh, that's a really, i'm uh, saying saru might have been wrong for leaving and joining the federation instead of trying to change his society from within but i mean maybe that's futile what, if people don't want to change what would the
0: alternative choice for him have been in that instance though yeah it, i mean
1: i mean it's a profoundly depressing episode when viewed through that lens
0: i can see that but i came away from it honestly the end of this episode brought a tear to my eye because he speaks about the inherent power that hope can bring someone and that power he characterized as greater than fear and that's what i really liked about it i mean and I mean it it gets to me as a Star Trek fan when the the TOS fanfare kicks up and he talks about how he's able to finally walk toward his hopes in the form of leaving everything that he knew behind. But that's not something that it it didn't override his desire to see more. You know, and and I found that to be Just in perfect lockstep with the the philosophical aim of the entire franchise that I love so much.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely the intent of the authors.
0: Yeah, and when it comes to intent, because my my reaction doesn't always line up with intent, but in this case, it absolutely did. Yeah, and uh, and it was designed in such a way that it also kind of re reinf- well, well first of all do you think this is laying a seed for something in season 2
1: i have no idea i hope so it'd be interesting to see I mean, more like of his character
0: and the world that
1: he Maybe, left behind I, don't
0: know. I mean i have there's there's always that possibility but i guess one of the things that i just really liked about the episode was that if you watched this before you watched season 1 you might have an entirely different perspective on Saru because the first season particularly those early episodes and and well before he actually came into his own as effectively Discovery's captain near the end of the first season
1: which was also really cool
0: yeah right
1: he's a better captain than Lorca
0: he was a better federation captain anyway <laughs> we don't know how how Lorca conducted himself in the mirror universe but um i i liked the idea that even though you you see this guy operate aboard the Shenzhou and then later on Discovery. And he comes off, compared to the other Federation characters, as maybe maybe even weak-willed and terrified. But then you, you watch this short and you understand that what he brings to his own society is this uh, subversive sense of adventure and curiosity that is looked down upon by his peers and by his father yeah
1: i mean he's truly a rebel in that society yeah very you know
0: and you never would have gotten that impression at least i don't think i ever would have gotten that impression from suru's appearances in season one yeah but uh but, And I
1: think you realize that he is braver than probably anyone on the crew because he yeah. had to overcome huge barriers of, of terrifying barriers yeah. to even get to where he is. Mm-hmm. So
0: But that and that was again the inherent power of the hope that he felt when he looked up at the stars and I love that. I, l- I love that kind of uh, that kind of message, but also I mean, Doug Jones sold it so well yeah. in this one that I I couldn't help but be taken along for the ride uh, when it comes to to this episode specifically. Um, Well, what else struck you about this one? Let's talk a little bit about uh, Uh, It, I mean, we didn't get to see very much of it, but uh, did you pick up on anything that maybe I didn't about the way that that society kind of functions? Uh, Or did it seem just kind of loosely tied together to you?
1: seem pretty like loosely like they have some sort of ritual sacrifice yeah system Mm -hmm. um that i'm guessing from other information we've gotten about that planet it's because they used to be sort of hunted and now they've reached some sort of agreement where we'll sacrifice some of our Mm -hmm. some of us to you in return for you leaving us the rest of us alone Mm -hmm. so
0: yeah and i uh i mean it's it's certainly far less horrifying than i was thinking yeah <laughs> because in my brain i was thinking like a bunch of uh kelpians at a, at a livestock farm just waiting for for the slaughter yeah and uh and it wasn't that which i was happy to see but but uh, in a
1: way isn't it that just because the cage is beautiful doesn't mean it's not a cage oh
0: yeah no you're absolutely right i mean it, it had its own set of horrors just
1: like capitalism <laughs>
0: You're gonna run with all right. Hey, I mean, I, I, I can't really uh, dispute that kind of an interpretation. But um, what did you think of of getting another look at, in this case, Lieutenant Philippa Giorgio from the Shenzhou?
1: That was cool. I mean, that brought a little bit of a tear to my eye. Cause really? Just she's so cool.
0: Yeah, she really is she really is
1: and she's like you know how many you know like you know how hard i had to work to even just get here buddy yeah. like come yeah. on like i think it's really cool that she like really went out on a limb for for saru
0: yeah and it shows where that bond comes from and it, it particularly reinforces how strongly uh saru felt anger at michael for the mutiny yeah on the yeah uh, because that bond goes back even further than we may have originally anticipated. Uh, but you know, again, uh, kind of going back to to the subject of the Section Thirty One show, I, I'm getting sad again because I, Giorgio, the the quote unquote real Giorgio, the prime Giorgio, is such a cool character, and I felt really, really fortunate to be able to get even just this slight glimpse of her again it's
1: very sad
0: what i i can't see them doing this very much but i mean it's possible just thinking back on uh back to enterprise in a mirror darkly how mirror archer ended up being sort of haunted by how great prime archer was and how it literally followed him through the corridors in his own mind on the defiant i wonder if Giorgio, mirror Giorgio, either in season two or in her own series that she's getting now is gonna have to confront who she was in the prime universe maybe i mean it would be a pretty
1: i feel like her vibe was not the jealous type though
0: well at least not the image that she projects yeah it's not even jealousy it's it's well maybe with archer it was jealousy but w- but with Giorgio it could be just a longing you yeah. know presuming that's even there i mean she was the emperor of the terran empire so it's yeah. possible that there was Maybe wasn't...
1: she's like looks down on yeah. Giorgio. For... you could have
0: accomplished so yeah. much more yeah yeah well, uh th- there, there are definitely a lot of things that that this short trek threw down for being only all of maybe 15 minutes long or a little bit longer maybe. but uh, all right well what are you, what are your final thoughts on the brightest star in comparison, particularly with Runaway and Calypso? You said that you th- thought that they get successively better. Uh, what is it in your mind that makes the brightest star the best of the three?
1: i think it had a solid thesis like its thesis was very much like you gotta keep hoping and keep dreaming mm-hmm. ab- about what could be yeah um because that's sort of how you're going to keep moving forward in your life mm-hmm. um so
0: and it was i mean it clearly i think the reason that i liked it probably the most even though i really admire the artistic game of calypso uh, was just because it was connected to the franchise the most. Yeah. You know, I mean, not what only... the
1: Tilly one was...
0: Well, yeah, I mean, just because it, it took place on the ship and it had Tilly there. Yeah, but it
1: wasn't really backstory.
0: Yeah, I mean, you yeah. got a little hint of backstory in the beginning of it, but this one had Saru, it had Giorgio, and it had the entire reason for Starfleet existing in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's why I probably connected with it the most of these first three anyway all right well that's probably gonna do it for episode 31 of discovery debrief we hope you enjoyed the show and if you did please like and follow us on our social media channels if you'd be so kind we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on itunes or facebook it only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it is posted if you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles, and feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes. You should be able to take in our, uh, our final look at Debrief's favorites that included Cicero's Choice which was regeneration from late season two of enterprise he decided to play with the format a little bit but i think it made for a pretty interesting discussion and was definitely uh enlightening when it comes to i think all of our perspectives on enterprise as a whole but particularly on the idea of uh of the retcon we had a pretty lively discussion about that so i hope you enjoyed it But uh, you should be able to find our episode devoted to Season 2, Episode 1 of Star Trek Discovery within the next week before Episode 2 drops. So, as always, until we meet again, please, go boldly, my friends.